0: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from DesignObserver.com.
1: On this program, Debbie Millman talks with industrial
0: designer Bill Mogrich about designing the laptop computer and why many people have a hard time understanding what design is. It doesn't occur to them that everything is designed. Every building, everything they touch in the world is designed. The world around us is something that somebody has control of, and perhaps they could have control of. Here's Debbie Millman.
1: Last year at the White House, the British industrial designer Bill Moggridge received the Lifetime Achievement Award at the Smithsonian's Cooper Hewitt National Design Museum. This year, he was named director of the Cooper Hewitt itself. This position is just the latest phase in a storied career, first designing high-tech products like the first laptop computer, then as a founder of IDEO, the global design firm. Throughout his career, Bill Modridge has advocated a user-centered design process in product development. He's also a big proponent of interaction design. To talk about all of this and more, Bill Moggridge joins me now in our studio in the School of Visual Arts in New York City. Welcome to Design Matters, Bill. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. It's such an honor. Such an honor.
0: You did that so beautifully. (laughs)
1: lots of practice. (laughs) Prior to your joining the Cooper Hewitt National Design Museum, you described your career in three phases. First as designer, then as manager of design, and then as a communicator, working as a writer, graphic designer, and video maker. I'd like to talk about all three of these for a bit. You studied industrial design at the Central School of Design in London. Why industrial design?
0: Uh, Well, I think it was probably because I had a big brother who was seven years older than me, and he was studying architecture as I was a little boy. And I thought, oh, it'd be cool to do something rather like him. But rather than architecture, um, somebody told me that you could design things of more of an intimate scale, uh, the objects that are around us. Uh, So That led me to industrial design.
1: So would it be true to say then that your fascination with what people want from everyday things is true?
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, if there's a simple, easy principle that binds everything together, it's probably about starting with the people. Um, And so the relationship people have to whatever you're designing is the most important factor and i'm interested in why people like things and what gives them rewards that are long term what gives them pleasures what gives them some, what's exciting it's it's about the effect that everything that you might design has on anybody somebody It's interesting that as so many things change around us, you know, the evolution of technologies and social relationships and so on seem to change so fast. But that principle, start with people, is you can rely on it.
1: I was talking to somebody earlier today about interviewing you and I was talking about all of your great accomplishments and, of course, talked about you being involved with the first laptop. And he was really interested in whether or not... You thought that the laptop was going to continue to exist, given the advent of the first the iPod and now the iPad and all of the Kindle type products. Do you think that the laptop is still going to be around in ten years?
0: Ten years, no question. All the laptop is is an input and output structure, um, and so the output is a display, and that display is fairly much the equivalent of a iPad only bigger and better. Um, So it could easily be replaced by another form of information, display a projected one, for example. Um, And then the input, you know, very surprising how good the mouse is, still is. In fact, if you go back to the original research done on the mouse, the people who did that research were very surprised as well. Um, But until we find something a lot better than the mouse, the mouse still remains pretty good. The trackpad is pretty good. The stylus is pretty good. So things that will allow us to input as well as a keyboard uh, or better, um, perhaps it'll be voice recognition or handwriting recognition, sketching... um, mousing, uh, all those input devices, they will probably still be resident in laptops. I mean, I think they'll also be resident in workstations, which you can't move around with you because the opportunity to make those bigger and more easy to work with is growing. Um, But the compromise between the little thing in your hand, like a phone, smartphone, or the in-between size like the iPad and that workstation, laptops still a very good in-between place to be.
1: Several years ago, you wrote a book called Designing Interactions, published by MIT Press. It's rather extraordinary. Uh, It was named one of the 10 best innovation and design books that year by Business Week magazine, 2006. Um, And in the book, you talk at length about the creation of the laptop. How did you get involved in that endeavor in the first place? How did you get initiated into this project?
0: Well, I was just um, starting my second office you know, i had a, started my first uh, design office in london in sixty nine and in seventy eight I researched uh, places in the u s and found out about Silicon Valley um, and was very excited about that uh, because Silicon Valley was moving from just chips to products as well. Um, so it's a great opportunity for a designer. I'd already worked on computers and telephones a lot in Europe in 10 different countries, so I had a fairly nice portfolio. And uh, one of the people who also worked at Park, John Ellenby, um, was uh, decided that he wanted to make a new company that would create a, a computer that was small enough to carry in half your briefcase. Um, and so um, I got to know him as he was about to embark on this endeavor. And he asked me to form his design and uh, engineering department for the physical design.
1: So you graduated in 1965. Um, you then went to the United States to work a little bit. You came back to London and then did some additional coursework in typography and communications. Why? Why?
0: Well, my first job was in Erie, Pennsylvania, uh, working for a company called American Sterilizer, uh, which was designing um, hospital equipment. Um, in fact, I, I met my wife in Europe, and she came over and joined me in Erie as soon as I had enough money saved up, and we got married. It seemed a little unfortunate to be working for a company called American Sterilizer, but we <laughs> do have a couple of kids. Um, and uh, and and one of the things they asked me to do at that company uh, was to design the corporate identity and i did such a terrible job and um, i thought i had to go back and study Something about graphic design typography, and so we went back to Europe. And I started um, working in an advanced studies department, which is like a little postgraduate program. Um, my wife was then studying furniture design, so we were both at the same school in North, North London. Um, in order to make ends meet, I started uh, working for myself, um, and uh, clients started to grow. And I, I found well, I said I founded the company when I had my first full-time employee.
1: Now, while you were working on the laptop, did you have any sense of how significant a contribution to technology and culture it was ultimately going to be?
0: Well, I think, you know, there are very few opportunities that a designer has um, in a career to do something which is truly precedent-setting. Um, And it was clear to me that because it was so new and so different from anything that had come before um, and was really getting produced, it might make a big difference. I don't think – you know, you don't predict that it's going to spread in the way it spread. Um, You just have no idea about that. but, um, But it was clear that it was very important in the sense of being very innovative.
1: You write in Designing Interactions that designing the laptop was about shrinking the computer so that you could take it with you, first as a luggable suitcase, then in your briefcase, and eventually your pocket. The transition from desktop machines to laptops was about designing the physical interface to be small enough to carry easily without changing the interactions on the display significantly because of the smaller size. Did you ever feel while you were doing this that you weren't going to be successful?
0: Well, in terms of the sort of challenges that we were meeting for the physical design, they were small things if you look at them as individual items. You know, for example, we we wanted to know what the right weight would be uh, as a maximum for the specification. So, I made everybody in the company, and only seven people in the company, uh, walk around with their briefcases containing what. They normally had anyway, and I gave them one-pound weights and said, "Carry as many of these one-pound weights as you can, as well as your normal stuff, and then tell me when it gets unbearable." and And we came out with a pretty good number, which was eight pounds. And so then we tried to design the thing f- to weigh eight pounds. Same thing was true of the impact. You know, how far could you drop it on the floor without, without it breaking?
1: Eight pounds. I'm thinking about some of the wonderfully light. Uh, laptops that Apple has come out with in the last couple of years. Although I have to say that there are times when even my iPad feels a little bit heavy. <laughs> I need to work on my upper body strength. <laughs> Let's move on to the Palm Pilot, which um, also, again, some some wonderful um, dialogue in, in the book about how this was going to be something that could change the way the world communicates.
0: Oh, well... Jeff Hawkins, actually, was um, the inventor of the Palm and the leader of the Palm Company. At that time, um, you know, Apple had already um, uh, tried to make something which was uh, an interesting smaller version. The Newton. Um, with the Newton, and, and it was not successful. It was you know, a mixture of being too big and too expensive, too u- unique user interface. So, and there were several others. There was a thing called the Zuma. Um, which Jeff had worked on. So I think the breakthrough in terms of the palm computing was that Jeff described four attributes uh, fitting in the pocket, um, the synchronization, the speed, um, and the price. Um, And in doing that, he made his team develop a product that suddenly broke through in the marketplace and became very, very successful. I think that's often very true, that you see a lot of these technologies where they seem as if they're about to work and somebody does an experimental version, it looks great, and then nothing seems to happen. And then suddenly the right time comes along and the right set of attributes come together and it suddenly flourishes.
1: Can you explain how that happens or is it just a big mystery with the stars aligning in a certain way why something is successful and something isn't at any particular time?
0: Well, I, I worked a little bit with Paul Sappho, who um, I taught a course at Stanford with him. He uh, um, works on future stuff. He calls himself a forecaster. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that was interesting to me in um, co-teaching with him course, I was actually learning from him, um, was that he talks about a hockey stick curve of about 20 years. That when you find a new technology, when it starts to be possible, um, it's usually too expensive or too heavy or too wrong in some way. Um, But it looks as if it's going to have great potential. The result is that there's a lot of interest in it. And so people invest a lot in it and it fails. And then after a period of Usually something in the close to 20 years, somebody gets the right spec and suddenly takes off with that curve like a hockey stick and suddenly becomes very successful. And, uh, you know, if you ask your question about what that might be today, I think uh, possibly... You
1: read that in my eyes, didn't you? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, handwriting recognition and uh, voice recognition are probably just way up that curve right now. And if you think about, you know, using your telephone today you're getting to the point where you accept the fact that there's an automatic voice recognition conversation you're having and it's not too painful and remember 10 years ago how awful that was Mm -hmm. um so you know that was the that was the bottom of the curve i think we're on our way up now
1: let's talk a little bit about the actual creation and manifestation of ideas Um, In 1991, you merged your company with David Kelly and Mike Natal to form IDEO, a global design firm that has transformed design methods and culture. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the methodology that the firm is now so famous for.
0: The thing that was really powerful in our initial success was the combination of the, the disciplines which are technical and the disciplines which are human. And the fact that we were good at both and able to put the two together in a way that was successful on behalf of our clients made gave us our initial success. Um, and that was true really all the way through the 90s. In 2000, we appointed Tim Brown as our new CEO and And throughout the 90s, although we were providing all the design disciplines in a holistic way, our clients were coming to us with the problem. They were saying, we've got this technology, design us the product, please. Whereas what Tim did was to allow us to invent and develop uh, methodologies which would allow them to be coming to us in a state of confusion saying, we don't really know what to do next. Would you like to help us? And then we would use those yellow stickies and the interdisciplinary teams, um, the ways and the methods to uh, try and understand a new context in a way that would yield not just the design solution, but the possibility of a new design solution, the what to do as well as the how to do it. And that was a big step forward.
1: So what does human-centered design really mean?
0: Well, I think if you, th- you can think of innovation in terms of a Venn diagram where there's an overlap between technology, business and people. Um, and if you look at um, you know, people who go to business schools, they tend to start with the business proposition. But they, in order to innovate successfully, they still have to find the right technology and the right customers. Um, If you look at uh, people in science and technology um, departments or skills, they tend to start with a new technology, which is true of many Silicon Valley companies. Then they go to a venture capitalist, try and get some money, and they think about what customer it's right for. And what we as designers can do is bring that people-first point of view. We still need the overlap between the business and the technology as well as the people, but what we have is a lot of methods which allow us to understand people's needs and desires and wants um, as a first prerogative, and then match the technology and the business solution to those people.
1: You were appointed the director of the Cooper Hewitt National Design Museum earlier this year, and... I was struck by something that I read about you where you had stated that you thought that your main goal in life was to design stuff. And I wondered what changed.
0: Well, you mentioned at the beginning about the three phases that you know, I've thought of my life. The first was designing stuff, certainly. Then I thought of helping interdisciplinary teams design stuff together. Um, but then once Tim took over and we were working in this um, new, relatively new realm of uh, things that are more about what to do, I found myself – I think the other founders of the company as well found ourselves um, pretty free because Tim was doing such a great job. Um, so, That's awfully wonderful. Yeah, it was wonderful. Um, and so David did the D School at Stanford and Mike became more interested in running and he, he does uh, 100 milers now. Um, And I got interested in telling stories about design. So I wrote the book and did conference presentations and teaching and so on. And then it occurred to me when I heard about the Cooper-Hewitt vacancy that it might be possible to do that at a national scale, tell stories, that is, and develop an international design authority perfect for storytelling. So I applied. So
1: much has been made of your considerable design and business experience but there was quite a lot of question in the press about your lack of museum experience. And it was written that your appointment was meant to shake up
0: the Cooper Hewitt. For me, it wasn't so much an idea of shaking up. It was um, a question of whether the museum needed the kind of interest and um, talent that I could bring to the party. Um, and the thing that was very exciting was that the more i found out about the museum the more i found that it was in excellent shape all the things that make a successful museum seemed in place and that made it possible for me to think aha what they really need is somebody they said they needed which some to do something additional to that as well um for, for which my my experience is probably useful
1: so what are your plans
0: Well, I've got to the point now after six months, um, we have identified kind of four broad audiences, um, kids, um, professionals, public and leadership. Um, For kids, we'd like uh, every kid in America to have an experience of design by the time they're 12 and have the opportunity to study it in high school if they want to.
1: So when you say design, do you mean any and all aspects of design? What kind of experience of design would you imagine that they could have?
0: Well, you know, the, the sort of important feature that design brings is this bridge between the sciences and the arts. And I don't think many people understand the power of design to put those two things together. So if you can have the experiential kind of learning of sciences, build stuff, you know, make stuff, make concepts, try them out – that's design. And so, if we can um, encourage that to be recognized as such, um, it could be an incredibly powerful thing for improving those other aspects of education as well as design itself.
1: So, that's for kids. And then there's also professional.
0: Yeah, professionals. I mean, I think if we look at both professional education in the design disciplines and practice uh, with the professional organizations that support it, America's really great. I mean, it's very strong already. What's missing, however, possibly is something which helps those disciplines relate to each other, um, something which looks at design in a more holistic way and a national organization which is equivalent to a design council in another country, you know, in Korea or London or wherever it might be, Holland – Uh, which will give uh, the individual professions a chance to link to each other a bit more successfully and then support them with tools and um, information, um, perhaps become a hub that would connect between disciplines over time.
1: And so then you have the public. Why do you think that there's such a barrier to the public understanding design? I find that when you talk about design in isolation with just the word design, they first and foremost go to fashion and then maybe interiors. But graphics and computer technology and moving image, those things... Rarely come to the forefront of what design includes. How come?
0: Well, I suppose that if you think about what people are most interested in, that particularly teenagers, fashion's the most obvious thing. It doesn't occur to them that everything is designed, that every building, everything they touch in the world is designed. Even foods are designed nowadays, you know, that, that it's all – So Even water is designed. Yeah, exactly. So, so the idea of, of getting that into people's heads and helping them understand it, making them more aware of the fact that the world around us is something that somebody has control of and perhaps they could have control of, and that's a, a, a nice ambition. Um, also, I think, um, you know, if you look at the the great uh, tradition of the Smithsonian, Smithsonian has 19 museums. Only two of them are in New York. All the rest are in Washington. And they're all free. And so they're a, a body of knowledge where people tend, tend to think they can send their kids or take their kids to Washington and take them around the museums, and they'll pick up a lot of knowledge. And we we could benefit from that in terms of design as well. Perhaps we can do more in terms of explaining design making it more accessible um, uh, without having to charge for entry in all of our galleries. And when we reopen in 2013 with the 60% more exhibition space um, we're hoping to have um, the first floor where you come into the mansion um, an exhibition which tries to explain what design is but make it available to everybody who walks through the door.
1: That's fantastic. The fourth category you talked about was leadership. And so what do you mean by that?
0: Well, I think it would be great if every leader in America knew how to use design for more successful innovation and solutions. Um, There is a strong movement at the moment for that to happen. Most business schools have design programs, although if you think about the number of students who go through a business school, only a small proportion of them will actually take those design options. The fact they have design programs in the business schools is a huge step in the right direction. Um, But um, we could do a lot more, I think, to help leaders understand how to use what some people call design thinking, which is really design process um, or the methods that uh, are applied but using that for everybody to be more successful. So whenever you have a challenging problem where your head really hurts, then you need to solve that problem with an interdisciplinary team. No individual is going to be a Renaissance person enough to succeed on their own.
1: So in the 1970s and the 1980s, you were part of quite a lot of remarkable teams helping to advance technology in our culture. And I see now that you're doing a lot of blogging. You are a columnist at Core 77, which is an industrial design blog. You're also blogging on the Cooper Hewitt site. And I also noticed that you are on Facebook. How do you feel about these new technologies that are connecting people?
0: Social media. Um, Actually, I have a new book coming out um, in a few weeks called Designing Media, and I interviewed the people who founded these new companies, these new technologies, um, including Facebook and Twitter and um, uh, YouTube and so on.
1: Have you seen The Social Network?
0: No, I haven't seen it yet.
1: Uh, I'd be curious to know what you think of it.
0: Yeah. Um, well, my interview with Mark Zuckerberg was quite interesting because to me, he seemed very, really kind of enthusiastic and genuine. Although, I will, you know, you can't really tell. I mean, it could have been... That he, was, he was sort of calculated, but that's not the way he came across to me. I thought he really um, did have an ambition to make things that would work for people. But the thing that's interesting with the social media is that it's a fulfilled promise at last. And if you look at the way the internet um, has developed, um, when, when it started to become popularized, people thought of it as being a place for community. Um, And of course, it wasn't initially. It was a place where you looked at pages. And so it became an information provider and a communication um, platform with things like email. But it wasn't a place where people develop community. And what's happened now in 2.0 and further is that all these social media are at last fulfilling that promise that people can use it for building communities and being friendly with each other.
1: What do you imagine for the future?
0: I just have to come back really to that um, principle we talked about right at the beginning, which is that I'm hoping that design is still for people and that it'll, you know, as designers we can create solutions and synthesize results which improve people's lives and make uh, things better in a general way. In the past, uh, we've thought about designing things for people. So your, your PDA or whatever it might be, something that you use as an individual. Um, And a slightly more expansive context is to think about that more about the health and well-being of the person so that we're thinking in a broader way about people rather than thinking about the things. We're thinking about the whole person or people. Similarly, when you think about the built environment, you know, I think architecture has thought about um, buildings in the past. Um, but as we move towards an expanding context for design, we find that we're thinking more about uh, social interactions, um, social innovations, as well as buildings. So it's not that one is replacing the other, it's expanding. So we're thinking about those social connections as well as the built environment that we live in. And then if we think about the larger circle, you know, sustainability is the big issue. And in the past, we've thought of sustainability as being a lot about materials, you know, sort of choosing the best material or designing for disassembly, that kind of thing. Um, But now it's absolutely clear that a sustainable planet is one that's completely connected. Globalization has shown us and the effect of industrialization on the world is a planetary affair. So you can't really think about just designing materials. You have to add to that the context of the entire planet. And that again is an expansion of context.
1: So then it actually fulfills some of the ambitions that you had at IDEO to create these interdisciplinary teams working together to create innovative solutions. Instead of just for people, now it'll be for the world. We hope so. Thank you so much for joining us today, and congratulations on your new post at the Cooper Hewitt, and all of the best for the future.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you.
1: Thanks for joining me on Design Matters. Bill Mogridge is the director of the Cooper Hewitt National Design Museum in New York City. I'd like to thank you for listening, and remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.